On behalf of the European Association for International Education, welcome to the EIE podcast. My name is Laura Rumbley, and I'm so happy you're listening in to episode number 49 in our series. The work of many EIE members is directly connected to international student mobility or to language learning, and sometimes both activities. Nicely, in this installment in our ongoing series, we have the opportunity to speak with two researchers, Aliona Ovchinikova and Christoph van Mol, who are interested in the intersection of those two phenomena. Specifically, they were drawn to the idea to take a closer look at how the distance or proximity between the language of a student's home country and the language of a prospective host country might affect that student's choice to study abroad in a particular destination. Along with a third author, Elspeth Jones, they produced an academic paper on this topic earlier this year titled The Role of Language Proximity in Shaping International Student Mobility Flows. We were intrigued and thought you might be too. In the conversation you're about to hear, I began by asking Christoph and Aliona to talk us through some of the foundations of the research on international student mobility that has laid the groundwork for their unique study on student mobility and language proximity. I think the, the study of international student mobility um, has kind of uh, developed first in educational studies, of course, but then also in migration studies, uh, has a quite strong tradition that emerged over the past 15 years in particular, I think. Uh, before, it has been uh, rather neglected, but I think particularly the study fields uh, wherein people start to focus on international student mobility very much throw the first questions also and, and, and the very first analysis on international student mobility. And you see, for example, um, that if you look at classical papers on international student mobility or the determinants of international student mobility, you have, for example, this paper by uh, Mazarone Sautar, which is uh, very much cited, which focuses on the push-pull framework, very much used in the international migration literature. But also, if you look at what emerged in international migration literature, then you really see that many of these papers are entered on the more general um, uh, migration literature on what drives international migration. And many of these papers, of course, they focus on historical links between countries, economic differences, uh, because there's a huge tradition in economics, of course, on analyzing international migration. So economic differences also um, in cultural studies and sociology, people look at cultural differences. But so in language studies, I think the main focus has mainly been always on what do students develop um, mm -hmm. during uh, their stay abroad in terms of language competences? And they did not so much focus really on, okay, what role is language playing as a driver of international student mobility? So that is what uh, kind of a gap in the literature that we, uh, that we discovered. Mm -hmm. Super interesting. Yeah, Aliana, did you want to add anything to that? We cannot see that we are the first to add uh, uh, to add the language variable um, onto the list of determinants of international mobility language has definitely been um, uh, considered among the factors that drive international student migration but what we have noticed is that when language was analyzed it was analyzed predominantly as either the same language spoken in a home and in, in a destination country or the role that most popular 
or widespread languages have in attracting international students uh, to this country. And although these findings are definitely important, and we ourselves do see higher rates of international students uh, between the countries that speak the same language, and uh, we also know and, and see how uh, high rates to, for example, English-speaking countries, at the same time, uh, we see the language as a more complex phenomenon when it comes to its role in driving international, uh, international student mobility. And that's not just our word intuition. Uh, well, first of all, in, um, in some papers that also analyze language as a factor of international student uh, migration flows, researchers themselves may note that sometimes they might not have seen evidence to the role of language just because they studied it as the same language spoken at home and in destination, but the influence of linguistic context can be broader. On the other hand, speaking to students, we can also hear some saying that, that they might have chosen a particular destination because the language of this country can be more easily acquired than the language of another country. So that prompted us to further develop the role of language in uh, driving international student migration. Indeed, and, I, so. and, I, and I think also there, uh, what really we also observed, and Aliona was hinting to this indeed, was that some people already said like, okay, language might be important, but they generally included it as a control variable very mm -hmm. often in their analysis. And so they did not explicitly theorize uh, in the beginning uh, of their papers uh, at what role, uh, what, what mechanisms uh, can explain why people move in terms of language to certain countries. And so that's also something that, so we have some research to draw upon, uh, some empirical findings, but then we thought like, okay, we can also foreground language much more and not downplay it as a simple control variable that mm -hmm. we have to take into account and going also beyond this focus on the dominant languages either or in the same language. So really, as Aliona indicates, uh, dive into this complexity much more. So let's do dive into this because I think it is so so very interesting and we'll kind of take it step by step. Um, I'd like to start with uh, one of the starting points that you know struck me in, in your recent paper on this point is that languages can be more or less similar to one another. And the idea that potentially the larger the difference between two languages, the more challenging it might be for somebody, mm -hmm. a student, to engage, to make a choice to go and study somewhere and to be successful um, in, in that environment. How did you, first of all, go about establishing the distance between languages? How do we understand that? Who would like to take on that question? Well, I can start. There exist several approaches to, that help to establish similarities and differences between languages, so for each pair of languages. All of these approaches focus on different aspects of already described as such a complex phenomenon as language. For example, there is a genealogical classification that helps to see links between languages from a historical point of view. So if we try to measure distances between languages based on this classification, the logic is the later the language is separated, the closer they are. A genealogical classification is often shown in the form of a tree, which mm -hmm. presents a language family as divided into branches, groups, and subgroups of languages. Well, just to give an example, we can consider the distances between Slovak and Czech 
which is small, as both languages belong to a Western group of Slavic languages. Mm-hmm. The difference between these two languages, and for example, Bulgarian will be bigger as Bulgarian is in the southern branch of Slavic languages. And if we add French to this analysis, the distance will be even bigger as uh, these languages belong to different branches of the Indo-European language family. Another classification that, for example, we used in our analysis helps to determine distances based on the similarity in vocabulary Mm -hmm. uh, for each pair of languages. For this classification, linguists used uh, the so-called list of basic words, words which are rarely borrowed, so such as numerals, words that denote parts of body, plants, animals, to determine the number of cognate words and thus calculate distances. This classification only exists for Indo-European languages, but as um, in our analysis, we focused on uh, the countries of uh, European economic area, in all of which the official language belongs to the Indo-European family that coincided with the aim of our study. Okay, so that gives us an indication of the relationships then between the various languages of the countries that you looked at. The next step in your analysis was to see whether your hypothesis that students would tend to move to more linguistically close countries was correct. In very simple, what did you find when you began to look at those dynamics? Christoph, how about you on this question? Um, Well, we indeed found that they um, are more likely to move to countries that are linguistically close, if you consider linguistic distances. Um, and we theorized this um, again, starting from migration studies, uh, because we considered that a decision of a student to go abroad is uh, until certain costs, right? It's an eco- they have an economic cost, you have a social cost, but um, what people try to do individuals is of course to lower their migration costs and uh, one of the ways to lower it we uh, we argued was to uh, go to a country where you have more similarities uh, with your own language because that way your insertion in the destination society would be easier because you can more quickly acquire uh, more decent knowledge of that language. You can more quickly communicate with people. Um, And so that is, of course, this is something that we do not know at the micro level, uh, but what the macro level data that we analyze at least suggest. Is there a negative cost for choosing this path of less resistance, potentially, of choosing you know, to study in a country where the language is more, is closer to one's native language? Um, how do you see some of the positive and negative effects of choice around movement toward linguistically familiar contexts? So as, as Christoph just mentioned, a positive aspect is obviously is that language uh, language proximity can help reduce migration costs. Migration costs, for example, uh, might be related to the effort uh, required to learn a new language. There is interesting research by Chisberg and Miller in which they studied the language proficiency of uh, immigrants who moved to the U.S. from linguistically closer and more distant countries. And what they found is that it does take less time for representatives of linguistically close countries to acquire a new language. And as students have to take courses in a destination country and also communicate uh, uh, with people outside the university, language 
proximity helps to reduce the costs um, uh, needed to acquire a new language. Do you see any negative sides, though, to making a selection of a destination where the linguistic proximity is closer? And maybe this is pure speculation and not something that you yeah. found in your research, but is that something that you all maybe in your you know, discussions with one another around the work that you were doing were thinking about in any way? No, I, I, I think so. Because, well, one could argue, of course, well, if people move to uh, linguistically close country students, that might be too easy. They might not really have that uh, real exchange experience where you experience culture shock and uh, and go through all kind of difficulties. But I don't know whether this is the kind of uh, experience that we uh, need to want for all students, because many uh, universities, higher education institutions, uh, the European Commission, they all have ambitious aims uh, in terms of uh, rising international outgoing uh, student mobility. And if it helps to some students, because of course the threshold to move abroad is for everybody different. Uh, and so we, if it helps to accommodate some students who would not go to, to offer the possibility uh, to go to a country that is linguistically more closed, I think it, uh, yeah, it's rather something positive than, uh, than something negative. Mm-hmm. I, can, I can definitely see that. I, I was also, um, as I was thinking about your work, there were two things that were occurring to me, uh, popping into my mind. One is that sometimes linguistically close languages can be surprising in their differences. And, and you know, I think as a native speaker of English, as I move to different contexts where English is spoken, one can be, you know, puzzled by the turns of phrase or the vocabulary, and that that's a very interesting experience to have with a very familiar language. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I was thinking about was the fact that there have been efforts, um, and I, I guess I'm reflecting a little bit um, specifically on the U.S. as well, to try to encourage students to indeed tackle difficult languages and to um, choose geopolitically interesting languages that may be quite different from English, which is predominantly spoken in in the US context, which is the example I'm giving here. I was wondering if you think it makes any sense to try and incentivize students to choose linguistically distant destinations for any particular reasons, maybe to maximize the transformative potential of their international education experience, or maybe to kind of support some broader geopolitical interests that that countries might have. Do you have any thoughts on, on that question? I'm afraid that's a bit beyond the uh, scope of our analysis. And um, I think it's it's also important to mention here that language has uh, varied influence on international uh, student mobility. So in our study, we focused on language proximity, but some students may choose linguistically distant countries for the reason that they learn this language as a second language at school or that one of the parents may speak this language. And uh, so we shouldn't forget that language is just one is just one of the factors uh, that we believe influences uh, international migration uh, of students, but there are other factors that uh, impact uh, destination choices of international students. Absolutely. Any thoughts from you, Christine? Yeah, I think it makes sense to promote, of course, students to go to, to very diverse environments. Uh, also, because um, if they return home uh, and they share their experiences, uh, for example, if everybody went to the same destination, um, that's not very, very interesting. But of course, we should always take into account also the linguistic ability of students, uh, because not all students have the same 
capacities in terms of learning uh, a new language. I uh, observed that myself as well when I was an exchange student. For me, uh, I, I arrived in Spain without knowing any word of Spanish. Mm-hmm. And very easily I learned Spanish and Catalan in six months mm-hmm. time. But for many other students, they were struggling. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is something that, and, and so I think, of course, it can be interesting to uh, to send students to countries uh, with very difficult languages. But then you also need to offer them as an institution then uh, decent preparation, uh, and you really need to guide them so that they don't really feel uh, lost in the in the destination country. So I think there is yeah, a responsibility from the host institution if they uh, a home institution if they incentivize this kind of exchanges. They should also adequately uh, prepare their students students and maybe also screen them beforehand in terms mm-hmm. of language uh, capacities, whether these students will really be able to learn that language because we have a, a very varied student population and we should just mm-hmm. uh, take that into account. We can't yeah. all be good at languages. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, especially especially that we know that for some students, uh, language barrier is uh, yeah. one of the most important reasons to decide not to go abroad. So, uh, as Christoph mentioned, probably some language courses that can prepare them to study in um, uh, in a linguistical and culturally distant country can be one of possible solutions. Yeah, that idea of lowering barriers for yeah. students is you know so important and really interesting in, in this particular conversation. Yeah. But at the same time, it's also complex because I do understand for institutions that imagine a Spanish institution wants to send somebody to Flanders in Belgium, uh, where they have a very specific type of accent compared to the Netherlands. Uh, It would make sense to have a general course in Dutch. Uh, and then these students, they arrive in Flanders and they anyhow get lost because they learned the Dutch from the Netherlands, for example. So I can imagine it's also difficult for home institutions to find people to instruct languages that are less common, right? For English, French, Spanish, uh, Italian in Europe, um, that would be quite easy. But I can imagine if you move to Hungary, uh, if you move to uh, Finland, uh, to Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, then it might be more challenging for institutions to offer these kind of uh, preparatory courses. So when it comes to those less commonly spoken languages, I wonder you know, how we can or how you are thinking about how countries with those languages can think about positioning themselves as attractive destinations for international students when we're talking about language issues and on that language continuum, do you have thoughts on, on sort of that, that side of the story? And we haven't even begun to peel the uh, lid off of the big question in the room, which is, of course, the English language and its prevalence, you know, in, in so many different um, international education contexts right now. What can these languages that may have proximity with smaller number of languages do to position themselves? As you mentioned, English as a medium of instruction uh, well, has definitely played a very important role in increasing the rates of internationally uh, mobile students. We did not analyze non-Indo-European languages in, uh, in our study. Um, so Estonian uh, uh, um, so flows from or to Estonia, Finland, or Hungary. But uh, the research that... Uh, also points to quite high rates, for example, from Estonian students to Finland, both countries geographically and um, linguistically proximate. 
there was another research I read about the experience of Turkish students studying uh, in Hungary and in the U.S. And most of the students said that due to historical, historical shared background between Hungary and Turkey, they experienced many cultural as well as linguistic similarities during their study abroad. So I would say that very much depends on the area, on uh, um, on the countries of the uh, um, of the of the analysis. Complex relationships between these various actors. It sounds like. Any other thoughts on this subject or on your research that you would really like to make sure that our audience knows about or is thinking about? Um, any particular findings that that excited or surprised you or? or new questions that if you had all the time in the world, you'd like to explore further when it comes to this area of research? We already started uh, <laughs> to explore some, no, uh, some extra topics um, in the sense that for the, um, of course, for the linguistic proximity argument, what would be very interesting uh, is to uh, investigate this also in other areas of the world um, and because there's also a lot of Asian uh, dynamics for example it would be interesting to uh, if, if somebody picks that up and, and investigates okay do we see uh, the same dynamics occurring in different world regions uh, that could be uh, one uh, question that we are not exploring um, but what we're currently interested in is now we looked at the linguistic distance between mother tongue of a student and the destination countries. But what we also observed is that we do not have uh, a lot of research on um, the role of uh, foreign language proficiency that the students already have. Because, of mm -hmm. course, we focus in our analysis on, okay, what's the mother tongue, what's the destination country? But students might not only uh, have decent knowledge of their mother tongue, but also foreign languages. Uh, and that is something that we find very surprising that nobody so far to our knowledge tried to investigate, okay, if we consider their foreign language knowledge and proficiency and then consider where they are moving to, do we also see that what they already know has an influence on their destination choices? Super interesting line of, of research, I think. I'm looking forward then to hearing uh, what you discover from that, that uh, exploration. One final fun question for both of you, just for us all to, to think about. What languages do you have in your life that you speak and understand or kind of live with? So, Aliona, can I start with you? I speak three languages, English, French, and Italian, and that's the order in which I acquired these languages. And that was basically one of the reasons that prompted me to study the role of language proximity, because when I was studying Italian after French, I couldn't but notice the similarities between the uh, languages. Uh, so that sparked interest in uh, uh, discovering more about similarities and differences between languages. So also choosing Italy as, uh, as a study destination. So that's where I get my uh, PhD. I think also shows that the role of language we we speak plays a role. At least that's my that's that's uh, that's my personal example. Very nice. And your mother tongue is is Russian. Okay, very good, excellent. Okay, so that is such another interesting fact in motion there. And uh, how about you, Christoph? What, what languages are in your life? Um, well, I uh, I have Flemish father, so my mother tongue is Dutch, uh, but my mother is French. She moved to Belgium when she was uh, twelve years old, but so. 
that means my grandparents, uh, they were always speaking French for quite some time, which was until they, uh, particularly my grandfather, could decently speak uh, Dutch. So uh, these two languages I have from a very young age. And then at school, I learned English uh, as well uh, as German. Uh, mm-hmm. They are obligatory, of course, growing up in a multilingual country where you have to uh, learn anyhow through your education four languages before reaching the end of uh, secondary school. That is uh, what you get when you live uh, in Belgium. Um, and then I uh, learned Spanish and Catalan uh, while I was on exchange in, in Valencia, in Spain. And afterwards, I also uh, lived uh, a little bit longer. I lived there for three years or so, Valencia, Madrid. Uh, then I uh, learned Italian uh, while I was studying in France uh, because my flatmate was Italian, but she could not speak any French yet. So we decided that uh, during the week we would speak French and in the weekends we would speak Italian. Uh, and so that also made me notice uh, this this experience, this cost effort that you have to make. Once you know Catalan and Spanish, it's very easy to also learn Italian. And then for my research, I also lived in Norway, uh, in Poland. So I also uh, learned some Norwegian. I uh, studied also a course in Swedish uh, and then uh, some Polish. But as I do not speak these languages anymore very often, I just know some words and some phrases, but they got completely lost. So but that's also how I experience that you really need to talk uh, and to uh, with people every week. And I think that's the case in English, in French, in Flemish, uh, Dutch, because I work in the Netherlands, of course, so that's a bit different. Uh, and then Spanish and Catalan. These are the languages that I, and Italian also sometimes, that I really... Uh, think I master to a level that I can have a decent conversation with some people in. Well, talking with both of you in one language today has been really, really interesting. Thank you so much for talking about this extremely interesting research on language and student mobility. And we're really looking forward to seeing more of your work in this area as it evolves. Thanks again for being with me. Thank you. Thank you. That was Aliona Ovchinikova and Christophe Anol who, along with colleague Elspeth Jones, co-authored a 2022 paper on language proximity and international student mobility flows. Aliona is a PhD student at the Center for Higher Education Internationalization at the Catholic University in Milan, and Christoph is an assistant professor of sociology at Tilburg University in the Netherlands. If you're interested in learning more about their research, you can find a link to their article in our session notes. Our notes also contain suggestions of EAA resources connected to the topic of language learning that you might also find interesting. If you haven't yet registered for this year's annual EAE conference and exhibition, don't worry, there is still time to join us virtually. The virtual-only registration includes live streams of the opening and closing plenaries, round-the-clock poster sessions and coffee corners, and a selection of on-demand sessions that will also be screened live during themed broadcasts during the conference days. There's also the opportunity to conduct one-on-one and group video meetings with both virtual and in-person participants in the platform until September 25th. We're publishing this episode on August 31st, 2022, and for those of you attending our 2022 conference, do be aware that the online platform is already open for attendees to explore. If you haven't registered and you still want to join us, it's time to act fast. Visit our website at www.eae.org for all the information you need.
Since our team will be busy online and in person for the annual conference and exhibition in mid-September, our next episode will be published in three weeks' time on September 21st. For now, all good wishes to you from the EAE.